Hey everyone and welcome back to the new illumination. I am Christopher Yarma. This is going to be slightly different. I am going to do a reading of Carl Jung uh, from Man and His Symbols, which was actually the last book that Carl Jung worked on. It's not totally by him. It's uh, the introduction is written by him. Each successive chapter is written by one of his kind of followers, one of the people who worked in uh, his strain of analytical psychology. And I think it very succinctly describes some of the issues and the problems that I am trying to address and bring attention to in this podcast. And they sort of elaborate on his ideas. It's a very good book, and I'm reading it currently. And this little section is called Healing the Split. I think that Carl Jung, out of all of the psychologists, and certainly out of all the people who were writing last century, seemed to grasp this problem the most. And, and he, really, he really understood on a, an extremely deep level. I'm just beginning to scratch the surface of the things that he wrote down and of his thoughts, and I'm really excited to read more. But without further ado... Uh, here is a reading from Man and His Symbols by Carl G. Jung, Healing the Split. Healing the Split Our intellect has created a new world that dominates nature and has polluted it with monstrous machines. The latter are so indubitably useful that we cannot see even a possibility of getting rid of them, or our subservience to them. Man is bound to follow the adventurous promptings of his scientific and inventive mind, and to admire himself for his splendid achievements. At the same time, his genius shows the uncanny tendency to invent things that become more and more dangerous, because they represent better and better means for wholesale suicide. In view of the rapidly increasing avalanche of world population, man has already begun to seek ways and means of keeping the rising flood at bay. But nature may anticipate all our attempts by turning against man his own creative mind. The H-bomb, for instance, would put an effective stop to overpopulation. In spite of our proud domination of nature, we are still her victims, for we have not even learned to control our own nature. Slowly, but it appears inevitably, we are courting disaster. There are no longer any gods whom we can invoke to help us. The great religions of the world suffer from increasing anemia, because the helpful noumena have fled from the woods, rivers, and mountains, and from animals, and the god-men have disappeared underground into the unconscious. There we fool ourselves that they lead an ignominious existence among the relics of our past. Our present lives are dominated by the goddess Reason, who is our greatest and most tragic illusion. By the aid of Reason, so we assure ourselves, we have conquered nature. But this is a mere slogan, for the so-called conquest of nature overwhelms us with the natural fact of overpopulation, and adds to our troubles by our psychological incapacity to make the necessary political arrangements. It remains quite natural for men to quarrel 
and to struggle for superiority over one another. How then have we conquered nature? As any change must begin somewhere, it is the single individual who will experience it and carry it through. The change must indeed begin with an individual. It might be any one of us. Nobody can afford to look round and to wait for somebody else to do what he is loath to do himself. But since nobody seems to know what to do, it might be worthwhile for each of us to ask himself whether by any chance his or her unconscious may know something that will help us. Certainly the conscious mind seems unable to do anything useful in this respect. Man today is painfully aware of the fact that neither his great religions nor his various philosophies seem to provide him with those powerful animating ideas that would give him the security he needs in face of the present condition of the world. I know what the Buddhists would say. Things would go right if people would only follow the noble eightfold path of the Dharma and had true insight into the self. The Christian tells us that if only people had faith in God, we should have a better world. The rationalist insists that if people were intelligent and reasonable, all our problems would be manageable. The trouble is that none of them manages to solve these problems himself. Christians often ask why God does not speak to them as he is believed to have done in former days. When I hear such questions, it always makes me think of the rabbi who was asked how it could be that God often showed himself to people in the olden days while nowadays nobody ever sees him. The rabbi replied, Nowadays there is no longer anyone who can bow low enough. This answer hits the nail on the head. We are so captivated by and entangled in our subjective consciousness that we have forgotten the age-old fact that God speaks chiefly through dreams and visions. The Buddhist discards the world of unconscious fantasies as useless illusions. The Christian puts his church and his Bible between himself and his unconscious, and the rational intellectual does not yet know that his consciousness is not his total psyche. This ignorance persists today, in spite of the fact that for more than 70 years the unconscious has been a basic scientific concept that is indispensable to any serious psychological investigation. We can no longer afford to be so God Almighty-like as to set ourselves up as judges of the merits or demerits of natural phenomena. We do not base our botany upon the old-fashioned division into useful and useless plants, or our zoology upon the naive distinction between harmless and dangerous animals. But we still complacently assume that consciousness is sense, and the unconscious is nonsense. In science, such an assumption would be laughed out of court. Do microbes, for instance, make sense or nonsense? Whatever the unconscious may be, it is a natural phenomenon, producing symbols that prove to be meaningful. We cannot expect someone who has never looked through a microscope to be an authority on microbes. In the same way, no one who has not made a serious study of natural symbols can be considered a competent judge in this matter. But the general undervaluation of the human soul is so great that neither the great religions nor the philosophies nor scientific rationalism have been willing to look at it twice. In spite of the fact that the Catholic Church admits to the occurrence of somnia adeo misa, dreams sent by God, most of its thinkers make no serious attempt to understand dreams. 
I doubt whether there is a Protestant treatise or doctrine that would stoop so low as to admit the possibility that the Vox Dei might be perceived in a dream. But if a theologian really believes in God, by what authority does he suggest that God is unable to speak through dreams? I have spent more than half a century investigating natural symbols, and I have come to the conclusion that dreams and their symbols are not stupid and meaningless. On the contrary, dreams provide the most interesting information for those who take the trouble to understand their symbols. The results, it is true, have little to do with such worldly concerns as buying and selling. But the meaning of life is not exhaustively explained by one's business life, nor is the deep desire of the human heart answered by a bank account. In a period of human history when all available energy is spent in the investigation of nature, very little attention is paid to the essence of man, which is his psyche, although many researches are made into its conscious functions. But the really complex and unfamiliar part of the mind from which symbols are produced is still virtually unexplored. It seems almost incredible that though we receive signals from it every night, deciphering these communications seems too tedious for any but a very few people to be bothered with it. Man's greatest instrument, his psyche, is little thought of, and it is often directly mistrusted and despised. It's only psychological, too often means it is nothing. Where, exactly, does this immense prejudice come from? We have obviously been so busy with the questions of what we think that we entirely forget to ask what the unconscious psyche thinks about us. The ideas of Sigmund Freud confirmed for most people the existing contempt for the psyche. Before him, it had been merely overlooked and neglected. It has now become a dump for moral refuse. The modern standpoint is surely one-sided and unjust. It does not even accord with the known facts. Our actual knowledge of the unconscious shows that it is a natural phenomenon and that, like nature herself, it is at least neutral. It contains all aspects of human nature, light and dark, beautiful and ugly, good and evil, profound and silly. The study of individual, as well as of collective symbolism, is an enormous task, and one that has not yet been mastered. But a beginning has been made at last, the early results are encouraging, and they seem to indicate an answer to many so far unanswered questions of present-day mankind.